0: it does allow us to see our country in all of its ragged glory, warts and all, viewed through the lens of somebody with an imagination to beat the band and operating from a distance where he could view the country and could present its realities more, more freely.
1: That was Ireland's ambassador to the United States, author of Ulysses, a reader's odyssey, Dan Mulhall. And I'm John Lee.
2: And I'm Martin Nutty. And welcome to another episode of Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation.
1: This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by the Irish Heritage Tree Program. Celebrate your Irish roots by planting native trees for family and friends in the beautiful Golden Vale of Ireland. Go to IrishHeritagetree and use the exclusive discount code today. It's Irish Stew ten for ten percent off. That code again is Irish Stew and the numeral ten. Keep the heritage of Ireland green and growing by going to irishheritagetree.com.
2: Hi, everybody. This is uh, Martin Nutty with the Irish Stew podcast and welcome to another conversation. And I'm joined by my partner in crime, John Lee. John, tell us who we got coming up here.
1: Well, we're we're really, I would say, honored to have uh, Ireland's ambassador to the United States. Daniel Mulhall joining us today, and we're going to talk to him about a couple of different aspects about his career, Um, because we'll start off with today's date is February 3rd. It's 100 years and one day from the publication of Ulysses, and we'll get into uh, Ulysses a bit later and also into the book that Dan just published, uh, Ulysses, A Reader's Odyssey, but before we go there, let's focus on your uh, day job, Dan, if I can call you Dan. That's what no, please a, do. That's, please that's do. what your I, idea is yeah. on yeah. the screen. Uh, focus on your day job. You know, A couple of days ago, you published uh, an article in the Washington Post. Leopold Bloom, the anti-nationalist star of Ulysses, is an ambassador for our day. So we'd like to talk a little bit about the Uh, ambassador role, the diplomacy role that uh, has taken up so much of your career. And now you're arguably in one of the very most important uh, diplomatic postings for Ireland. February 3rd, we're speaking to you at a time when international diplomacy is being put to the test. Uh, Little Ireland just backed the Russian Navy off its fishing grounds through some Right. Fisherman diplomacy, and also right now Russia is massing troops on the Ur- Ukraine border at a time when Ireland has a seat on the UN Security Council. So, in general terms, how can Ireland uh, ye- wield its soft power to influence events that are going on in the world today through this through diplomacy in a world that always seems to be teetering on turmoil?
0: Yep. Well, we pride ourselves on being a country that can build bridges and can bring people together. So when we campaigned for the seat on the Security Council in 2019, 2020, we argued that we had a capacity to, to bring people together, that we were a, were a European Union country, 100%. That's There's no question there. But we're also a country that has a lot of um, historical memory that we can uh, relate to the uh, condition of other countries around the world. Uh, we are now a fully developed, prosperous country that is uh, among the, the most fortunate in the world. But we, uh, most of us can remember a time when Ireland was a far different country from the one that we have today. So I think we have an affinity with countries in different parts of the world. We have a very strong aid program that has been active for now, um, getting on for for 50 years um mainly in africa but elsewhere as well we have a proud tradition of peacekeeping that goes back to the late 50s shortly after we joined the un and our peacekeepers have always been um revered regarded highly around the world by um the un and the uh nations which have uh hosted our peacekeepers because they have a way about them they they don't uh Blunder in and try to, um, you know, heavy hand uh, local populations. No, we go in there trying to find ways of of s- smoothing uh, ruffled feathers, of soothing tensions, and of uh, getting people to come together and uh, resolving problems. So, um, if you take that to the to the broader stage of the uh, Security Council, of course, no one can prevent. Um, one of the permanent uh, members of the Security Council from vetoing anything they want to veto. But I think we have proven ourselves over the last uh, year and a bit uh, to have the capacity to get agreements. So, for example, we were given responsibility for the file on humanitarian aid to Syria, and there there were issues there, and it could have easily been the case that they... The uh, routes into Syria would have been blocked, um, but we managed to to get a consensus, uh, and those um, those routes uh, remained open. Now, of course, the Ukraine crisis is a, is of a different nature, and um, but but even there, you know, even though it's it's a huge kind of international issue that uh, you know is um, you know uh, building up into a standoff, um, you know, between the United States, uh, the European Union, and Russia, um, and there's you know real fear of invasion. There's a, you know, very um, real prospect that uh, tough sanctions will have to be applied uh, to Russia if they were to invade Ukraine. So this is is a big stakes uh, arena. But even there, Ireland is around the table at the European Union, um, you know, uh, discussing uh, the issues and trying to find common ground with our European partners. And then, of course, trying to find common ground on the transatlantic uh, connection between the United States and the European Union. And I think we do a decent job. I mean, there's no country can can wave a magic wand. There is no instant solution to any European or uh, global problem. But uh, we're a country that's always looking for solutions. And we're always trying to find a decent way forward for ourselves, for our partners, and for the world at large.
1: And I know... Uh Ulysses played a small role in the run-up to Ireland getting the seat on the Security Council. Uh, they held a great Bloomsday event on the grounds of the of the United Nations before it, it before certainly. the, uh, the it vote did. was taken.
0: Yeah. Didn't. You've reminded me of that. They did, not they? know that article I, I I wrote by the way in in the, um, in the Washington Post uh, during the week. Uh, the headline was. It was misleading. I I never said that Bloom was an anti-nationalist. No, he was a nationalist. He was an Irish nationalist, but he was a certain kind of nationalist that uh, didn't go along with the idea that you had to be of a certain creed or, or race or ethnicity to be an Irishman. He basically said, if you were born here, you were Irish. I think we would say if you live in a country and you identify with the country, you can be Irish too. But he was actually pushing back against exclusivist notions of of um you know nationality having to be defined by by your you know being generation from sea breeding generation from a particular country. No, Bloom's pragmatic uh version of nationality was I was born here, Ireland is my nation. Well, so let's get it. Yes, he wasn't an anti-nationalist. He was simply a critic of certain aspects of nationalism from that time, which may be relevant again today.
1: And that's probably something we'll get into again a little bit later. Why don't I turn you over to Martin and we get a little bit of your Irish story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: On the podcast, Dan, uh, we always like to talk about origin stories. I yeah. know um, in 2019, you were made a Freeman of your
0: hometown, which is Waterford City.
2: But um Tell me a little bit about your beginnings there.
0: Well, I mean, um, one of the great things about Ireland, uh, for me at least, is that um, it's a land of opportunity and uh, you don't have to be from a privileged background in order to uh, make the ascent of the ladder to the highest echelons of our public service, of our diplomatic service. Some countries around the world have a very much a caste system whereby people of a certain background tend to be the dominant forces in in the foreign services of their countries that's not the case with Ireland so i come from a um, i would say a regular irish background i grew up in a terraced house uh, my father was an insurance agent uh, in waterford uh, my mother was a homemaker. There were six of us in the family. We were a happy family, you know. We 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 you know we lived um, uh, in, in Waterford for all of my childhood. Uh, we didn't really have relatives outside of Waterford very much because my father was an only child, and my mother, all of her siblings, remained in Waterford for all of their lives. So it's a very unusual Irish story from that era because most people, most families had at least one or two people who took the boat and emigrated or took the plane and went to the United States. We didn't have anything like that. So I was very much a a Waterford background. Now we would go on our holidays every year. My father was a great believer in heading off for a couple of weeks in the summer and we'd get into, we'd pile into his Morris Minor and we'd head off to Wexford or to Limerick or to Clare or to Cork or to Kerry or Galway. Uh, and we'd always kind of stay somewhere, you know, for a, for a week or two, um, to, uh, just to, so I, I, so I got to know, I mean, I, I experienced the whole country, uh, as a child, I, I traveled all over with my father. My father was also a big soccer supporter. In those days, Waterford was the leading uh, team in the league of Ireland. It's now in the second division, but in those days it was the kingpin of the league of Ireland, uh, championship. And, uh, my father was a huge supporter. So for most weekends in the winter or every second weekend in the winter, we would head off my i get into the car with him and a few of his pals and we'd drive to Cork or Limerick or dublin or uh somewhere like that for a game so I saw a lot of the country in that way as well going to uh soccer stadiums around the place and so it was a very happy childhood uh, not a complicated one um you know we lived a simple life for the most part, but it was a, but we were you know we were well looked after our parents my parents were very diligent. Uh, My mother in particular was very um, conscientious about education. She realized that uh, her generation, my father's generation, had lost out because they didn't have sufficient education to be able to make their way um, up the ladder in life. And she was determined that her children would have every opportunity to be educated to the highest level. And that's why I was the first member of my family ever to go to university.
2: So... What does that say? Your father missed out on the opportunity to go to college it, or it wasn't expected. Totally right? exactly. But, you know, 50 years later, it is, let's say, de rigueur almost in Ireland that everybody goes uh, for a college education. What does that say about how the country has changed in that intervening period? You went to UCC, yeah. but that, yeah. that was probably at that point still the exception
0: and yeah. not the rule. I mean, when I was in UCC, I think, if I remember correctly, there were four and a half thousand students at the university. Some of those were probably, you know, night students doing night courses or whatever. Now, I think there are 25,000 students in UCC. So, and now they might, some of them might be part-time students on, but nonetheless, the place has grown dramatically since that time. Uh, What this all means, and, and you know, the best um, illustration I can give is to look back to my time in London. And in London, you met people of different generations because you met people who were in their 80s when I was there, even in their 90s. It came over in the 50s, 60s, and so on. A lot of those came over without... um, a huge educational background. Um, They came over with maybe a primary education or maybe that some years of secondary school, Uh, some of the women who came over were nurses, Um, you know, some worked in, you know, in, 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 um, in office jobs and so on. But, but, but for the most part, you know, the men worked on the building sites um, and some of them did quite well and formed their own companies and, and became very, very successful indeed. But, you know the average irish person at that time um didn't have much education and ended up you know uh, working in 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 the sort of um building um industry for example and and you know did okay and, and and probably you know but but it was a hard life because you know it was it was in those days uh, the job was physically demanding and and so on and and uh what now if you meet the younger irish in london these days um and of course there's much more of them in London than there would be in any American city because of the problem with visas here. It means that our, our the number of young people who can come from Ireland to America now is, is somewhat limited. But, but in London, people can come freely. And you find the younger ones are all working in banks uh, for insurance companies. They're working for all the blue chip uh, companies in London. They're working in the financial services sector. They're doctors, they're architects, they're engineers. You know They're business people, they're creative people. So it's a wholly different transformation. I mean, the people, I love the people who came over in those earlier days because they're really wonderful people, very sort of, you know, um, you'd be proud of them because they, you know, they worked hard and they, you know, they contributed to their society around them and they they became living bonds really between Ireland and uh, Britain and Britain, after all, is our most important and nearest neighbor. So not to in any way uh, denigrate, um, you know, their work. It was very important. And and a lot of them sent money back home that kept Ireland going for, 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 you know, for decades. But there's a transformation now in the sense that the Irish who come these days, wherever you are in the world, the younger Irish will be of a, a different kind from their predecessors because they have the benefit of having uh, been um, able to um, go through our educational system and get uh, qualifications at the highest level.
2: Yeah, kind of reminded, you know, um, I've been reading uh, Finton O'Toole's latest book, and yeah. in that he makes reference to the fact that uh, free secondary education only kicked in, I believe, maybe in the late 50s or early '90s. No, no,
0: no, 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 I can tell you when it kicked in, because it kicked in the year I started secondary school, it was 67. Okay. okay, so yeah. Uh, 67, so, maybe 68, and I was the first year, actually, uh, before... Be, uh, before my year, um, the year I started uh, secondary school, um, there was a system whereby um, you had to pay fees, or you could get a corporation scholarship. And I remember doing a special exam to get a scholarship. Uh, that was how how uh, how big a deal it was to be able to afford to go to university. That the corporation, the local authority, provided a small number of scholarships for you know to make sure that bright. A kids got a chance to go on to secondary school, but of course, once the free education came in, the number of people going to secondary school and finishing secondary school increased dramatically. And then after that, the number of going to university also increased. So I was the beneficiary of that very, um, a very ambitious, very imaginative investment on the part of the then Irish government in in the future of our people. I know we're
1: like the take a few stops along your international uh, journey and diplomacy. How about uh, New Delhi? Maybe you could tell us a little, about, little bit about that. And I know Martin has, uh, was looking into some things that were, writ- were written by a previous guest of ours that we can touch on, but uh, tell us about that experience.
0: Well, um, a very different experience from what it would be today because um, when I left for New Delhi, I came home a year later. I did not speak to my family for the entire year. Okay. It's hard to imagine that now. I mean, even during the lockdown here, we were onto our children every day back home, right? We're onto family back home all the time, Zoom calls and you name it. It There's none of that in those days, of course. And uh, people often forget that, Um, you know, um, so it was, you were really cut off from, from the rest of the world. The only connection we had with the wider world was the BBC World Service. So a shortwave radio was an essential piece of your equipment. These days, people wouldn't even know what a shortwave radio is because it wouldn't be relevant. You'd get all your information now on the internet and, and to Spotify or whatever. So a very different kind of experience. But nonetheless, one that I, I, when I was heading off for India at the time, I was 24 years of age, um, I was heading off on my own to a country a long, long way from Ireland where I knew nobody. And that was a serious challenge. It was not, wasn't like going to France or Spain where you could come home for Christmas or come home for your holidays or come home for a weekend or whatever. No, you were going to a country where you were going to have to stay for a full year. But I, when I got there, I started to see the attractions of living in a country like India. That I was fortunate enough to meet my wife who's uh, here beside me now as we speak and uh, who's been my partner in life ever since I met her in August of, of, of uh, 1980. So it was a challenge, definitely. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would have found the challenge too much for them. For me, it happened to be the makings of me because I realized then that I was probably more suited for foreign policy, for foreign affairs work than I had imagined before I went on my first assignment. I think the first assignment for diplomats, it tests you. And it proves whether you have what it takes to have a career in the diplomatic service. And I thrived on my assignment in New Delhi and I proved to myself and to the, my colleagues that I was indeed a suitable character for a foreign service career.
2: And I know um, I've read about that time in India where I think you come to a realization of the benefit of leveraging. Um, Ireland's cultural tradition, specifically in the literary arts, specifically with Yeats, um, to open up doors. And there's a well-known story um, about uh, how uh, Nehru's sister, the first prime minister of India, recited uh, from memory the the Lake Isle of Vinish Free to you.
0: And when you were old and gray and full of sleep. I mean, that was an extraordinary moment. I mean, there were two moments in India that I remember in particular. And, and it was one of them was with Mrs. Pandit, uh, Nehru's sister. And she mm. was she just sort of went into this extraordinary recitation. And the whole family joined in. So you had the most powerful Indian family of the 20th century. And they were, um, you know, genuine fans of Irish literature. So I asked Mrs. Pandit, I said, where did you um, learn that poem? And she said, when I was interned by the British during the 1930s with my brother, <laughs> she said, yes, was a nationalist and we never forgot him. We loved him because he was a nationalist as we were. And we, you know, we, 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 and we've never forgotten the poems we learned by heart in those days when we were incarcerated during the Indian freedom struggle. And then another time I was at a, a big conference in New Delhi. I'd been invited to speak at a conference about James Joyce. And I turned up at the conference anyway, and I gave my speech on Joyce, about Joyce's Ireland and so forth. And afterwards, I met this young woman, a young teacher from from the state of Assam. Assam is in the northwestern corner of India. It's one of the seven small states that are up there in the Himalayas, very remote from from the rest of India. And uh, the people there are different, they're ethnically different from those on the plains, uh, the majority of the Indian population. This young woman told me, she was teaching James Joyce to her pupils up in Assam. She wasn't teaching Ulysses. She was teaching um, uh, a portrait of the artist as a young man. And she told me she'd never actually seen a copy of the book. She was working on the basis of stencils of, you know, stencils of the book or uh, passages from the book. So I immediately gave her my copy of a portrait and uh, she took it away. And I like to think that that, uh, copy I gave her back in 1980 has somehow survived the years in between and that it's been a, a, a good resource to bring the people of Assam closer to Ireland. But in those days, what, what, I, what I remember thinking was that, what I remember talking about that day was Joyce's in a portrait. He talks about uh, the nets of language, religion, and nationality, which are thrown around us to stop us from flying And then he says, I will fly through those nets. And it seemed to me obvious that language, nationality and religion were at least as important in the India of the 1980s and probably today as they were in the Ireland of Joyce's time. So that's the way in which uh, the kind of universal elements in literature can be um, connected with by people of very diverse backgrounds from different parts of the world. That's what I found over the last 40 years.
2: John referred to um, a guest that we had on, a lady by the name of Kovari Madhavan. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wrote a book called The Taint of is a fictionalized okay. account of the Connacht, the Connacht Mutiny. Yes. Um, and one of the things that emerged from that conversation was the similarities, the surprising similarities of the Irish experience and the Indian experience and the connectivity by virtue of the fact that we were both colonized, Ireland being the first colony and India being the most valuable colony, so to speak. Um, did that resonate in your experience when you were there?
0: Uh, definitely. Um, now, I'm not sure it would still resonate to the same degree because time has moved on and memories fade and so on. But in, in, in my day, I remember when I was there, the Raj had only gone out of business 33 years before. So you know, for a lot of people that I met, they would remember. They would remember the Raj. Um, even people much younger than Mrs. Pandit was, Nehru's sister, who was an older lady by the time I met her. But so yes, I mean, people often talked about the way in which Ireland had inspired or had provided inspiration for the Indian independence struggle. And, I, and I, I, at the time, I studied it, and it was clear that there was a genuine connection. I mean, when devalera visited India when he was in opposition back in the late forties, he was fated on his arrival in Delhi and he was treated like a genuine superstar because he was seen as a, a fellow freedom fighter with, uh, with, with Nehru and that generation. So yes, I remember one day, um, I, I got a call from my receptionist, at the PMS who said, there's a man here who wants to see you. So, okay. So I came out, this elderly, uh, Indian gentleman who sat down and told me his story. He told me he had been interned by the British during the 1930s. And I said, well, why were you interned? He said, because I published a Hindi translation of this book, Dan Breen's My Fight for Irish Freedom, a famous Irish book. And this man uh, showed me his Hindi translation of Dan Breen's book. And and the cover had it, had had the sort of Hindi writing, but it also had an English uh, translation of Dan Breen's uh, My Fight for Irish Freedom. So, uh, as an example of how um, how how our experience was seen to be relevant to the experience of India. Now, of course, Indians had different views. Some of them were very kind of, uh, you know, um, upper class and, and uh, maybe very kind of uh, anglicized in many ways. A lot of them had been to schools in Britain. But I think among the political class, certainly there was uh, a definite understanding of the the importance of the connection between Ireland and India, and the fact that Ireland had, had blazed a trail in prizing itself free from the British Empire, and a trail that the Indian freedom struggle had emulated in the 1940s.
1: And you mentioned uh, people uh, of that class heading over to England for education. When we were talking to Cobury, we got into a discussion about the Indian law students, who were oh, yeah. in Dublin at the, at the lead in the run up yeah. to uh, 1916, yeah. and uh, possibly were were part of sort of the revolutionary turmoil out of the moment. And also, we talked a bit about V. V. Geary, the Indian uh, president, yeah. who was a law student in in uh, Ireland. So uh, fascinating stuff. You know, I'm sure we could we could spend the rest of the time talking about your various postings. Certainly, some. Premier postings: Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States. But before we bring you over to Ulysses, let's just get a snapshot of your time in uh, the United States as the ambassador. Probably too much, a lot more time on Zoom screens than you would have yeah. preferred.
0: Yeah, too much time. Really, it's it's been a bit disappointing, especially the last few months when we've had to kind of revert to you know Zoom again, having been a little bit freer in the months in the end the, the second half of last year. But anyway. Hopefully we can get through this uh, fairly soon and we can have something like a normal St. Patrick's Day this year, but that's still up in the air, still to be decided, obviously. Um, So, um, yeah, I mean, it's been a marvelous experience for me here. I mean, when I'm asked the question, your favorite posting, I, I always say without reservation here in the United States. And there's two reasons for that. Every posting is a combination of you live there and you work there. And sometimes you work in a place and the work is great, but the living is not that great or the living is great, but the work is poor and not that exciting. Mm -hmm. And America, the combination is fantastic because you've got a great country to, you know, to experience this variety of America is something else. Again, people think about, you know, um, urban, rural, East, West, North, South, but actually everywhere you go in America, there's great diversity. And that's one of the, charming aspects of this country. And we've enjoyed immensely um, traveling around the country on business and, and seeing and and understanding uh, more and more about America. But then the work is also fascinating because, you know, Ireland uh, counts for something in America because of the Irish diaspora here. There's always an openness to engaging with us and anybody I need to talk to in the American system, I can talk to them. They will always take my call. And that's a good, good tribute to the American system that people are open you know, in other countries, diplomats and officials will hide from you. They don't want to talk to you because they don't, they don't, they don't want to be embarrassed or they don't want to tell you things or whatever. Americans are, are, are admirably open. You know, I mean, they don't tell you everything because they can't, but, but they tell you what they can tell you and they're good to deal with. So the combination of the work, the quality of the work and the quality of the country is an unbeatable combination in my uh, estimation. Um, so, um, I've enjoyed a number of things here. I've enjoyed obviously the dealing with the the politicians and the political system here. Dealing with the, the White House and the State Department, the Treasury—very capable people. It Doesn't matter who's in government really. It just you know the people there are always very high caliber, regardless of who's uh, who's in power, whichever side of the aisle uh, are on top at the time. But. You know the, the, you know, the quality of people is very high. And then I've enjoyed going into Congress as well. I mean, not in the last couple of years. I haven't done very much, but, but before that, I was in Congress all the time. And, you know, you get a great buzz out of going in there. And there's a lot of interesting people there that you can talk to. And they've got a lot to say for themselves. And they want to hear what you have to say. So there's a real, there's a real, there's a real dialogue. Uh, possible here in America between yourself ourselves and the American our American host be they congressmen senators or members of the administration um the second thing um i've enjoyed is is seeing the um the scale of ireland's economic interest here and in particular the expansion of irish investment in the united states wherever i go now around the united states i always Um, connect with Irish companies that are investing locally, that are employing people that are really uh, making a huge difference and making sure that our relationship with the United States is a two-way relationship, not just one way. There's investment going in both directions, trade in both directions, tourism in both directions, and so forth. So that's been important too, and I've enjoyed that. Uh, And then I've also enjoyed just dealing with the Irish community around the country because this is a joy to me. It uplifts my heart every time I meet people who maybe three or four generations removed from Ireland but they still have a passionate interest in their Irish heritage. And that is something that you cannot, you can never take for granted. And to me, it's uplifting to meet people who are so proud of their Irish heritage and want to come along, want to meet the Irish ambassador, want to engage with Ireland, want to be helpful to us. And the last couple of years in particular, our our Friends of Ireland group in Congress played a blinder in in, in protecting us against the ravages of Brexit. uh, Because uh, um, Brexit was a real challenge for Ireland, I think without our friends in Congress, I don't think the outcome—the outcome—would have been far more difficult and far worse for Ireland than it has been already. And for example, I don't—I'm not sure the protocol on, on Northern Ireland would ever have been agreed had it not been for the pressure coming from the United States. I think the British government might well have walked away from the protocol by now had it not been for their fear of the consequences for their relationship with the United States. So our our friends in Congress have done a, have done a wonderful. A job for us. I'm deeply thankful to all of them on both sides of the aisle, but particularly to uh, the co-chairman uh, Richie Neal, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, who really has done a, a great job in 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 in, in protecting, defending uh, the peace process against the impact of Brexit, defending the open border on the island of Ireland against the impact of Brexit, pressing for the British to adhere to the protocol which they signed in December of 2020 and ought to be implementing, but are not.
2: Traditionally, Irish, or the sons of Ireland, if you will, within America, were associated with the Democratic Party. And this was actually a question that I, I kind of posed uh, to your uh, former American colleague, uh, Emer Rockhone. She was kind enough to be on the podcast. Now it seems to me that people of Irish extraction are on both sides of the aisle. So, um, what does that mean from a diplomatic point of view? or What challenges does that, you know, um, present? Or is it
0: just simply whoever's in power are the folks I'm going to deal with? We uh, We don't decide who runs America. That's America's job. We just connect with whoever is in charge. And so, for example, in the last administration, I had friends. I was friendly with Mick Mulvaney, who was chief of staff, head of the budget department, eventually special envoy to Ireland. Robert O'Brien, who was a national security advisor, ultimately, with the Trump administration. Uh, Kevin Hassett, who was the uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. And there were many more people that I connected with. So there's no shortage of people to talk to. And likewise, with this administration, you know, I've engaged with Marty Walsh, with Mike Donilon, uh, with uh, uh, Samantha Power. You know, there's a lot of people, uh, the senior echelons. So on both sides, you know, there are people with Irish backgrounds. That's the way it should be. I mean, like it would be an extraordinary situation if all 35 million people of Irish descent were all all of the same political view. I mean, I'm assuming that the Irish in America um, represent every possible view from the extreme right to the extreme left and everything in between. That's the way it should be. So I don't think there's any kind of, uh, you know, difficulty the fact that Irish people are on different sides of the fence on Irish issues. There is no fence, and they tend to be kind of you know uh, supportive uh, they tend to 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 be uh, supportive of Irish issues on a bipartisan basis regardless of their political beliefs. so that's the important thing for us. but the fact that there are different views uh, held by Irish people um, in America that's a normal thing, and it's something that we have to not just accept but also celebrate
2: I'm going to step
0: away from your diplomatic efforts, although
2: I think we'll find in our conversation that it's very difficult to separate your literary interests from your actual day job. And first of all, I just want to start out by talking about the book that you've just brought out, Ulysses, A Reader's Odyssey, and thanking you for that. I will admit I have never read Ulysses. I have dipped into it over the years. I have a copy that has tracked me from one apartment to another in New York. And occasionally I pick it up and say this is the year that I'm going to read it. And what I find is as I start to read it, uh, you know, the opening chapter of Telemachus where I'm being, you know, uber nerd, I want to understand everything that I'm reading. And w- what I end up doing is going into a, w- a Wikipedia rabbit hole as I chase down some obscure Joycean reference.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't go there if I were you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, there lies the road to insanity. I think you know. But anyway, some people exactly. Like, like, you know, I mean, look. Uh, the the way I approach it is that you can take this novel at different levels. You just read it uh, and just. Enjoy and understand what you can understand and leave the rest aside and maybe go back to it a second time and explore it more deeply. Or you can decide that you do want to uh, take a deeper dive. And for example, you could start to take seriously the Homeric parallels and try and work those out. You could start to uh, explore the literary devices that are used. For example, if you're reading The Oxen of the Sun. Which um, mimics every um, type of English literary language from Anglo-Saxon in the Middle Ages to twentieth-century American um, commercialese. Uh, You could do that, and you could you could spend a long time, you know, plotting the different, finding the finding the parodies of Swift, of Carlyle, of, of Macaulay, of Dickens, and so forth. So that's possible too. Um, you could also decide that you were going to read it with um I mean, there's a you know there's a book of annotations of Ulysses, which is probably longer than the book itself. <laughs> and you could you could follow every annotation. Another thing you can do, there's a wonderful book that I bought, which is called um, uh, It's the Real People in Joyce's novel. So, Everyone that's mentioned there, who's a real character, is you know. There's actually a little biography of them there. Now, some of this is very little information, but so you could do that. You could follow every single character and try and find out who they were. So, and my own feeling is that this is like a well, a very deep well, which might be bottomless. And Enright, the Irish uh, writer, wrote recently in a in a, in some publication or other that. You shouldn't be embarrassed if you haven't finished Joyce's novel because no one has really finished it because it almost can't be finished because it's a bottomless well and therefore you can't get to the end of it really fully. So you always have to keep going back to it. So not finishing it is no shame because even those who have read the last page probably have to go back and relook at it and find new things. And even now, having Read a, published a book on it, having read it probably four or five times in the course of writing this book, I'm finding new things that I hadn't really cottoned onto before that might be interesting and I may follow up on. So it, it, is a, it, it can be a kind of a, um, a lifelong obsession and you can follow every rabbit down every hole in, in the book, but it's not for everyone. And I think it can be read it can even be read uh without reading the whole thing. I, I recommend in the book that you kind of you choose certain chapters to read and 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 regard it as like 18 different short stories. Well, some of them are more like novellas, but nonetheless, 18 short stories rather than a single novel, because it's not a detective novel where you have to uh know what happened in chapter three in order to understand chapter four. No, you don't. But at the same time, it does have clues, it does have things, you know, um scattered throughout the text, which are relevant. And, and if you f- find the connections between them, that can add to your understanding of the novel. But it's, that's not essential. So you can understand the novel at various different levels, and, and everyone has to take their own approach to it. And I, my, the, uh, my approach is to see the book as uh, almost, a, a, almost a source book for the history of Ireland in the early 20th century. Yeah,
2: you know, I was kind of astonished You know, once I started delving into any given page page of Ulysses, how many references that he made, like the depth of his knowledge, all sorts of oddities. Um, And of course, there's a famous quote, you know, from Joyce, you know, it says, I think he was writing to his French publisher uh, at the time and said, I've put so many enigmas and puzzles that it will keep the professors busy for centuries arguing over what I meant. So we're we're a century later, and we're having this conversation, and that's the only way of ensuring one's immortality. What do you think it says about Joyce that he kind of had this need for immortality? What's that about?
0: Well, you know, we're all different, of course, in the way we're made up, and some of us couldn't give a fig about um, uh, you know what posterity thinks about us. I mean, you look at most politicians they're looking to a legacy, right? They're looking to, you know, get that kind of monument in their honor somewhere and have the history books, um, you know, judge them in a favorable way. Um, So I think with Joyce, uh, his, um, his attitude was driven by an extraordinary belief in the value of his talent as a writer. From a young age, He was convinced that he had something that the world needed, and it was his job to to make this into books that people would read and would um, be changed by reading what he had to write. So he felt that he could explore the life of the world around him in unique ways that would be valuable to people, not just in his own time, but for times to come. So he did see himself uh, as, you know, a kind of a a, um, a counterpart to Shakespeare. Now, I, I quote in my book, um, Nora Barnacle, his, his wife, Nora Joyce, eventually saying something like, oh, you know, my Jim, the only man he's now has to match is that fellow Shakespeare. You know, in other words, mm-hmm. I think he did have that Shakespeare complex, that notion that, He could be, he had the the wherewithal to be a really special writer who would genuinely deserve the kind of attention that Shakespeare has uh, secured over the centuries since his lifetime. And, you know, he had an arrogance about him, which uh, was both um, shocking in some ways, but also revealing in others. In that he met Yeats when Yeats was about um, in his maybe mid-30s and Joyce was probably in his early 20s. And he said to Yeats, oh, you, you know, you're too old to help me. In other words, you're, <laughs> you're a pastor. Now, Yeats at that stage hadn't written the great poems that I think um, make him a special poet. The, you know, the poems from the, from 1916 onwards, which are really marvellous and, and powerful. But Joyce just dismissed him and didn't didn't uh, want to hear. He, you know, felt he had nothing to learn from Yeats. Uh, so he had an arrogance about him. And that arrogance, of course, is what makes him the writer he is. That he was prepared to do things that nobody else would have dreamt of. I mean Ezra Pound, who was his great friend and mentor and supporter, once wrote to him and said, "Have you have you knocked your head off something <laughs> and gone completely bonkers?" He said, "You know," he said, "the way you're writing at the moment, okay, you might get your book published in a Bulgarian or Albanian translation, but not going to be in English." You know, and Joyce sort of dismissed said, "No, nope, no," nope. he just kept on, and, and you know he refused to have any any changes made to what he wrote. He you know even his his publishers. Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, who published, who were the editors of The Little Review in New York in the early part of the 20th century uh, who, who in 1918, 1920, who published the first uh, episodes of Ulysses, um, they made some changes, sensible changes to try and avoid getting into trouble with the law. And he was, he was appalled at this and was just couldn't accept it. And no doubt, after the book was finally banned in America, he actually piled on. More and more stuff that uh, would have ensured that there'd be a ban. It's almost as if he was courting um, martyrdom, that he wanted to be a kind of a martyr for his art. But he had this extraordinary belief in himself that what he wrote was valuable to the world, not just to him.
1: And I, I have a confession to make also I have yet to read it. I've made several stabs at it. Now with your book as my guide, I'm sure I can get through it. I did read uh, Portrait of the Artist, just finished that recently. I've read Ooh. The Dubliners. I, I'm familiar enough with, you know, I've dipped into the uh Ulysses at a few different places. And, and I, the, the, the art form I'm most comfortable speaking in about is the visual arts, painting sculpture. Yeah. Uh, when I lived in Washington, I worked at the National Gallery of Art. spent four years working there. And when I started looking at some of the aspects of Ulysses, I began thinking of uh, cubist paintings. I began thinking of the other arts that were going on at the time, that similar kind of disruption, the Cubist paintings, that sort of fracturing of the image, the the way you could look at it from various viewpoints simultaneously. Uh, It was also at the time of surrealism with this sort of emphasis on the dreamscape. And you had Freud's work in the background, you had Einstein. Talk a little bit about how Joyce sort of fit into this general kind of re-, re envisioning of the artistic sphere that was going on.
0: Well, you know, I I'm a historian by training, so when I look at the arts in the 20th century, I see the First World War as the kind of uh, the kind of turning point. And if you look at it, look at the poem, look at the poets and writers who were popular before World War I. Very few of them retained their popularity after the war. Because after the war, a different art form became prevalent and necessary, I would say. You know, with Joyce, I think um, part of the reason why he wrote the way he did was because he understood that the novel in in its 19th century format could no longer cut the mustard. And remember, one of the reasons Joyce came back to Ireland after he left in 1904 was to establish a cinema. The first effort at a cinema, which failed, of course, but still he tried it. Which means that he was he understood a little bit about um, cinematic art, and probably understood that that the cinema was taking over from the novel, in that it could tell an ordinary story much better than the novel could. So the novel had to find a new. Um, new ground for itself, and that's where Joyce, I think, was pitching his tent on on new ground that would that the cinema couldn't reoccupy, really occupy because it's ground that, that that involves the you know the the inner world of his characters, uh, Leopold Bloom, Molly Bloom, and Stephen Dedalus, and that's what makes um, Ulysses so such an extraordinary achievement. Although not an easy book to read by any means, and I make no bones about this, I in my book. Ulysses, a reader's odyssey, I make it clear that this is a difficult um challenge. It's a bit like climbing Mount Everest. And you can get to the foothills, you can get to the base camp, okay, with a bit of effort. But that, that final four or five chapters is a genuine um, you know, um cliff, cliff climb up a very steep cliff indeed. Well, and not everyone, yeah, you know, not everyone will accomplish it. You know,
1: why? Why don't you take us at least to the foothills and, and share uh, a passage from Ulysses and a passage from your book? I will. Your, I will. your reader's guide.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, um, the chapter that I, because I'm a historian by training, the chapter that I that I really um, um, uh, really like most is is the Cyclops chapter, which, of course. Is the liveliest chapter of all because a lot of things happen in it. It's got very lively dialogue. Dialogue's dialogue, quite funny, uh, and it's quite profound as well. I mean, it's also lampooning. He lampoons uh, uh, you know the citizen who's based on Michael Cusick, the founder of the GEA. He kind of uh, has a go at uh, sort of extreme versions of nationalism and so forth, and he does it in a very funny way. And of course, Joyce himself was a nationalist. Uh, you know, he he was a supporter of Parnell. Supporter of Arthur Griffith, so he wasn't in any way um, you know dubious about the, the the right of Ireland to have its own um, political um, identity, but he was sceptical about some of the the versions of nationalism that he saw in in um, in operation. So this is where Leopold Bloom is is being attacked, uh, being kind of challenged in the pub by some of the other customers there, some of whom are obviously, have obviously had drink taken, so it's a, it's a kind of a pub scene, and uh, you know, he's, he's, he's goaded about, you know, they don't believe he's a real Irishman because he's a Hungarian Jewish background, this is a bit unusual, he, you know, he, he drinks a glass of Burgundy instead of a pint of Guinness, and he, he has a cigar instead of a drink in the pub, so you know, he's an unusual character, so and he's also got this unusual background. But anyway, He then cuts loose. And this is the first time when you hear Bloom actually asserting himself and pushing back against his detractors. But it's no use, says he. Force, hatred, history, all that. That's not life for men and women. Insult and hatred. And everybody knows that it's the very opposite of that that is really life. What? Says Alf. Love, says Bloom. I mean the opposite of hatred. I must go now, says he, to John Wise, just around to the court, a moment to see if Martin is there. If he comes, just say I'll be back in a second, just a moment. Who's hindering you? Off he pops like greased lightning. A new apostle to the Gentiles, says the citizen. Universal love. Well, says John Wise, isn't that what we're told? Love your neighbours. That chap, says the citizen. Beggar my neighbour is his motto. Love my... uh, He's a nice pattern of a Romeo and Juliet. Love loves to love, love. Nurse loves the new chemist. Constable 14A loves Mary Kelly. Gertie McDowell loves the boy that has a bicycle. MB loves the fair gentleman. Leachy hand lovey up. Kissy chap poo chow. Jumbo the elephant loves Alice the elephant. Old Mr. Vershaw with the ear trumpet loves old Mrs. Vershaw with the turned-in eye. The man in the brown Macintosh loves a lady who is dead. His Majesty the King loves Her Majesty the Queen. Mrs. Norman W. Tupper loves Officer Taylor. Uh, you love a certain person, and this person loves that other person because everybody loves somebody, but God loves everybody. So you have a good example of, of, the, of the charm of the book because on the one hand, it's extremely serious, you know, against force hatred history which was the basis of my piece in the Washington Post. Um, and he gives a very, in a way, a profound, you know, that that the meaning of life is not force and hatred, it's it's love, you know, which is, I think a lot of us would would probably agree with. We might put it in that way, but we would agree with it. And then he goes off into this kind of, um, like, almost like schoolboy. I mean, like, you know, nursery rhyme, you know, love, 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 love. So, you know, and that, of course, is a reflection of the way in which our minds work. Because even if you were to say something very serious, you might, in the, in the next second, think of something funny. You mightn't say it, but you might think of it because that's the way our minds work. And this is what he's trying to do is to kind of, to kind of capture the, the quirkiness of the minds of ordinary people. But the way I write about that in the book now um, uh, is I have a, have a section in the book, at the end of the book, called The Opposite of Hate which is obviously based on the passage I've just read. Over the years, as I returned to Ulysses, I have found different avenues of approach to the novel. My Champs Elysees, when I engage with Joyce's work, has generally been early 20th century Irish history. When I was in Germany, I came to believe that the novel had a wider reference beyond its rootedness in the Irish experience. At Bloomsday events in Berlin, I always read the lines in which Bloom defines his nation. As Ireland, I was born here, Ireland. My comment on this, thinking of Germany's 20th century nightmare, was that the history of Europe could have been very different had Bloom's notion of nationality been more widely accepted. Understandably, that point resonated with my German audiences. Thus, the target of Joyce's novel, was not just the paralysing narrowness he detected in his father's Ireland, but manifestations of intolerance wherever they were to be found. And there was plenty of it about as Joyce knuckled down to write um, with a world war raging around him. This all leads me to revere the passage from Ulysses in which Bloom sets out his credo. And I belong to a race too, says Bloom, that is hated and persecuted. But it's no use to he, forced hatred history, all that, That's not life for men and women. Insult and hatred. And everybody knows that it's the opposite of that that is really life. Enough said. I leave it at that, except to add that the response from the citizen shows what Bloom was up against. He said, a new apostle to the Gentiles. Beggar my neighbor is his motto. He's a nice pattern of a Romeo and Juliet. My point being that uh, Bloom is this reasonable character, but he gets dismissed by people who are more rabid in their views. And I make the point that, you know, it's much easier to be dismissive and to attack people than it is to make a reasonable case for a rational outcome. That's the message that I think Joyce was trying to impart.
2: I mean, was he kind of a huge fan of that passage that you just read? And I, like you, kind of feel that kind of Cyclops
0: really resonates at the moment. It does. I mean, look, I mean, and also Bloom resonates. I mean, remember, he's this guy that he's not an intellectual. He's not a sort of a super kind of intellect. You know, he, he gets a lot of things wrong. He <laughs> he thinks he knows things. He doesn't really. He gets his maths wrong. He gets everything wrong. Gets gets names wrong. It's, but that's the way we all are. We we remember things badly usually a lot of the time. But he's a kind of a guy that tries to work things out for himself. He's a serious kind of guy. He takes life seriously. He doesn't go with the crowd. You know, he doesn't go along with the drinkers in the pub. The easiest thing, as you know, is to go along with the crowd and go along with the populist kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, received wisdom. Bloom doesn't do that. He stands up against it in the end. And, you know, in a later episode where he um, he hears skin to go with Fitzmaurice, who was one of the was the the cab driver for the Invincibles who killed uh, the chief secretary, Lord Cavendish in um, the Phoenix park in May of 1882, a number of months after Joyce's birth. Um, you know, um, in, in that episode, Skinny Gold talks about all the grievances and, and Bloom pooh-poohs this and says it's egregious balderdash. And he says, you know, uh, we, we have to look at both sides of the argument. We, we have to think, you know, and we have to think about, uh, you know, he said, why don't we work together instead of hating people because they live around the corner and speak a different vernacular? I mean, you know, think about that in today's world. Think about Bloom has a scientific bent. He's a scientific mind. So Bloom would be in favor of, of masks, mask wearing. He'd be in favor of, of vaccines, no doubt, because he has a scientific bent. And he wears, as we know today, a lot of people have this kind of negative reaction to science. So, so I think he's very much a man for the 21st century, as well as the 20th century, because he does encapsulate universal values, which are in many ways just as relevant today as they were 100 years ago.
2: You know, and, and I think to some degree, what you're seeing expressed, I guess, by the citizen in Barney Kiernan's pub in Ulysses is kind of like a form of kind of toxic nationalism. And... Bloom introducing the notion of love kind of like upsets the apple cart. It's like, you know, who the hell is this guy? I remember in 2016, I think Eamon Ryan, who's now the minister of the environment, stood up in the dial and made a speech. And at one point he said, this house stands for love. And within, I think everybody was nonplussed by that notion because everybody was so kind of used to being, you know, trying to tear lumps out of each other that the notion of kind of approaching a politics in a totally different way. Uh, And what I think people think when when you say love and politics is, is that they don't think you can be strong and love at the same time. Yeah. And I think
0: Bloom was really onto something a hundred years ago that we still have yet to absorb. I mean, probably love might, might not be the exactly Correct word, but it's the word that Bloom came out with because we often come out with words that are not exact. Uh, that that's the reality of our human condition. But he was probably talking about you know um, harmony and you know togetherness and 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 you know uh, seeing the seeing the goodness in each other's um, um, lives as, uh, you know instead of seeing the seeing the threat and so forth. So I think it's a he's a very tolerant, uh, humane, uh, pragmatic. A uh, sensible individual who tries to work things out for himself has a, you know, tries to do the right thing in life and is not even willing to challenge his wife when she's unfaithful to him because he doesn't really want the fuss of having this massive row and then you know mm. he wants to hold on to his marriage and he's willing even to turn a blind eye to her infidelity uh, in order to uh, you know to keep his life um, you know together as it is.
2: Well, let me just ask you this. Joyce, when he writes his novel, the three main characters, Bloom, Molly, and Stephen yeah. Daedalus, yeah. are all to some degree outsiders within Irish society. They Absolutely. are not part of that mainstream.
0: That's right. I mean... Uh, um,
2: what's, what's the thinking there? Uh, and Joyce himself, if you think about it, what does he do? He upsticks and gets out of Ireland altogether so he can write about it.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, so, I mean, look... Um, Joyce, um, I find it fascinating that he left Ireland at the age of 22. And he only went back three times for relatively short visits. And yet he never wrote a serious word in any of his novels that wasn't rooted in Ireland. So he had an obsession with the country that he left. It was as if he had to leave in order to be able to see the country clearly from a distance and to be able to write about it with freedom. And that, I think, is the great beauty of what uh, he's achieved from our point of view, because it does allow us to see our country in all of its ragged glory, warts and all, uh, viewed through the lens of somebody with an imagination to beat the band and from, and operating from a distance where he could view the country, uh, and could, could present its realities more, more freely. So that is, I think, um, why the book is the kind of book it is, because it, it wasn't written, um, at a desk in a house in Dublin. It was written in three cities on the European mainland during and after the First World War. Remember, he wrote this book when the world was being turned upside down. He wrote it through, through the, the, the most, the bloodiest war in human history. And then the aftermath of the First World War was obviously also very turbulent. You had the flu pandemic, you had all the revolutions and the upheavals that occurred. And really, the world didn't settle down until around the time uh, his book was published. So he wrote it at a time of extraordinary turmoil and he wrote it in three different cities and he spent seven years writing the novel. Fancy that seven years of hard labor.
1: He says at one point, uh, I want to give a picture of Dublin so complete that if the city suddenly disappeared from the earth, it could be re- reconstructed out of my book. Yeah. And that leads us to a question, uh, that a, a listener, uh, sent to us and somebody I believe you'll be talking to soon, uh, Jerry Mumbly in Der- Derbyshire. Oh yeah, uh,
0: yeah, Jerry. Yeah, I know Jerry. Yeah, I know Jerry. yeah. yeah he's going to
1: be he's going to be doing an interview with you, and he asks that he read that you regard Ulysses as a character led book, and could you say a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like most books, say popular fiction, are stories, and they're driven by the story, and the characters are not that you know they're not always that compelling, but but they but the story. Uh, drives the novel on. Um, in in, Ulysses, the story is practically non-existent. I mean, it's uh, if you boil it down, uh, it's about two men walking around Dublin, meeting in the evening, uh, mm. spending a few hours together, and then going and then going their respective ways, while um, the wife of one of them has a has an affair. Uh, and then um, in, in the evening, uh, she gives her thoughts about what happened during the day and her life and her marriage before falling asleep. I mean, that's the that's the substance of the book. So the story doesn't really <laughs> take you very far. Um, now there are other subplots and so on. So it's not just that. But still, that that's the main kind of um, element in the, in, in the book. Um, so it has to be. So I, I, I see it's, it, it's driven by character and language. So the language is, is extraordinarily important because Joyce, you know, stretched the resources of the English language uh, to, you know, to, to an extreme. Um, and to an extreme which has meant that it's off-putting for a lot of people who are trying to read it as ordinary readers, which is why the book is so difficult and so, so impenetrable by, from, for many. But, but, but the heart of it all is really the character of Leopold Bloom. Because when you think about it, most of the pages of the novel. We accompany Bloom. And for a lot of the novel, we're inside Bloom's head. So we get to know this guy better than any character or than almost any character in world literature. So it's an extraordinary achievement to to present this character who is not an exceptional person, by the way. He is chosen because he's an ordinary person. He's also an outsider. You're right there when you say earlier that, yes, Bloom, Bloom was Hungarian-Jewish uh, origin. Um, Molly was born in Gibraltar, half-Spanish. Stephen is Irish, but has a, has a strange Greek name. And he's a rather remote character as well because of his personality and his aesthetic outlook. So Bloom is, Bloom's charm, Bloom's appeal is in his essential ordinariness. He's an ordinary man. But the idea that you, you can write a novel of this size that's in the mind of an ordinary unspectacular individual that's where the extraordinary achievement comes about
2: i'm got a question because i don't think you can talk about ireland unless you talk a bit about religion and this is my last question okay Um, and it kind of forces i suppose to wear two hats A guy called Joseph Walsh, who was secretary of the Ireland's De- Department of External Affairs in 1941, Indeed. Indeed. sent a telegram to his counterparts in Switzerland and, quote, said, please wire details about Joyce's death. If possible, find out if he died a Catholic. Express sympathy with Mrs. Joyce and explain inability to attend funeral. Mm. What's your take on that as somebody that actually sits in the Department of Foreign Affairs now looking
0: back, you know? Well, I mean, it it was of its time, is all you can say. I mean, um, when you think about it, um, Joyce's novel was banned in the United States and in Britain until 1934. Not in Ireland, interestingly. Not in Ireland, um, but it was banned. So, I mean, this was a very controversial novel that had been written, and in the the mores of that time, it was something quite um, you know, quite challenging for a lot of people. Um, it, it, it was seen as a kind of a something to be kept at arm's length and, and as a kind of a potential corrupter of of innocent um Irish manhood and womanhood. So But actually, I recently saw a letter. The the man in question who was in Geneva at the time was a man called Sean Lester, who was one of the great heroes of 20th century Irish diplomacy, to my mind. He was was our delegate to, to the League of Nations back in the 1920s. And when, in the years leading up to the war, he became the League of Nations administrator of what was called Danzig, the free city of Danzig, which was under the, under the Treaty of Versailles, Danzig was a free city and it didn't belong. It wasn't part of Germany and so on, even though it was surrounded by Germany um, or was. Uh, so he did that work. Eventually the Nazis ousted him and, and they took over um, Danzig, which is now Gdansk, of course, and, um, and so he was a heroic figure, really. And then he moved back and he became our representative in Geneva during the Second World War. But he met Joyce about two weeks before Joyce died. And they had lunch together in, um, in um, Geneva when Joyce was passing through. And if you, I've seen a letter that he wrote to Mrs. Joyce after her husband's death. And it was a beautiful letter. And it clearly showed that at least John Lester admired and and uh, revered Joyce and had really enjoyed uh, meeting him um, um, uh, over lunch in Geneva two weeks before he died. And he was genuinely uh, shocked. Now, okay, he wasn't allowed maybe to go to the funeral, which is unfortunate, but it was a decision of its time. And remember, Joe Walsh, even in his time, was a rather anachronous figure because he was a very, a highly conservative, even more conservative than the average person would have been at that stage. So no bones about it, Ireland was a very conservative country in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and up into the 70s, I guess. And then gradually the country opened up. And today is a very progressive, outward looking, uh, tolerant and progressive country. Uh, but Joe Walsh was reflecting, if you like, the mores of the 1920s, uh, the 1930s, when he uh, wrote in that way to, um, uh, to Sean Lester in, in Geneva to find out about Joyce's um, religious beliefs.
1: Interesting chapter. Uh, Ambassador, you, you've been incredibly generous with your time and your insights here. The very okay. least we can do is give you our shameless plug, a chance for you to... Tell our listeners what they should do, what they should find out, where they should go.
0: Well, I mean, I suppose, uh, given the time that's in it, I, I should say, first of all, that I've uh, published a book, which I hope will be helpful to people who want to try and uh, plow their way into uh, the uh, the, fer- the fertile but, uh, but difficult soil that is uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, it's called Ulysses A. A Reader's Odyssey, and it's available from New Island Books. I think you're going to put the uh, the link to it on your website. I would also say to people that I want you all to enjoy St. Patrick's Day this year. Do it safely, do it sensibly, do it in accordance with local rules and regulations and protocols. But do enjoy St. Patrick's Day. We've had uh, two years where we haven't been able to enjoy this wonderful uh, Irish-American phenomenon that is called St. Patrick's Day and I hope that this year will be a return to something close to normality which will be a great, great thing and I think it might be the best St. Patrick's Day ever because we're now uh, two years without the experience so I think we'll enjoy it even more on this occasion so I wish you all every happiness Banachdina uh, Fela Liv Thank you Thank you,
2: you so Margaret much Ambassador and uh, I, for one, can say uh, you've enhanced my understanding of Joyce greatly. I can't recommend your book enough to our listeners. Uh, Ulysses, a reader's odyssey. We will put the link up in our show notes. And and uh, I recommend it to everybody. Uh, thank you. And thank you for your time. Thank
0: you very much. It was great to talk to both of you.
1: Ambassador, we're going to end up the... Uh the interview with a taste of Ulysses. The, uh, the climax of Molly Bloom's soliloquy, performed by actor-producer and Patty Maloney's daughter, Aideen Maloney.
3: Once in the tear, Dead days beyond recall. There are the world, the Mispic... Oh, I hate that. The Mispicum. Love, sweet song The last concert I sang at When was it? It's over a year ago St. Teresa's Hall Clarendon Street Little chits of missies they have now singing Kathleen Kearney and her like On account of father being in the British Army When I had the map of it all And, Pauldy, not Irish enough for them. I'll let that out full when I get in front of the footlights again. Kathleen Carney and her lot of squealers. Miss this, miss this, miss the other. Lot of sparrow farts skitting around talking about politics they know as much about as my backside. Anything in the world to make themselves some way interesting. Irish homemade beauties. Soldier's daughter am I. Aye. And who's the you? Bootmakers and publicans. (laughs) Oh, they'd die down dead off their feet if ever they had a chance to walk down the Alameda on an officer's arm. My eyes flash passion. I've my mother's eyes and figure anyhow. They don't know how to sing a song like that. Let them go and get a husband first that's fit to be looked at, and a daughter like mine. Or see if they can excite a swell with money like Boylan, who can pick and choose whoever he wants to do it four or five times, locked in each other's arms, or the voice either. I could have been on the stage only I married him. Some love, sold. I'll change that lace on my black dress to show off my bobs, and yes, by God, I'll get that big fan mended, make them burst with envy. Sweet train, far away. Eee. One more. So.
1: Well, Martin, we wrapped up uh, this episode with a beautiful performance by award-winning actor and director, Aideen Maloney, who just for us created this performance of a segment of Molly's Soliloquy.
2: Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. And it was a real pleasure talking to Dan Mulhall. I really Get a great deal of pleasure about drilling down into people's origin stories and specifically Dan's origin, if you will, diplomatic origin story in India. It feels to me that that kind of really set the tone for his career as you related to us in meeting one of the most powerful political families in India, the family of Nehru, who was the first prime minister, and how. They were able to recite Yeats from memory and how Dan realized that that was an excellent way to build a bridge. And it was interesting how he managed to use literature as a point of diplomatic entry into all his postings that followed on and continues to do so down in Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah, I I was interested in the D.C. conversation, his view of. I guess we call them the bureaucrats that just keep everything going, no matter who's in charge, which administration is running the country, and how he has working relationships with so many of them, and how he works in a way across the aisle. He has good working relationships with a lot of people in the government without reference to their political party, which I guess is central to the diplomat's life and uh, continually impressed with somebody who's has such a high-level career in diplomacy, is able to have such a really impressive career with literary pursuits and communicating his love of Joyce and showing us, as you were alluding to, Martin, all the ways Ireland can wield soft power through its culture.
2: Yeah, it's a unique approach, and it works. Well, John... This is a special episode, obviously. It's not every day you get to talk to the Irish ambassador to the United States, but it's also the final episode of season three, and we've had some wonderful people on, and it's been a real delight, but we're going to take a break. But to fill the gap a little bit, we decided to conduct a little experiment, and we are going to have, what do we call them, these things?
1: I went with catch-up, but now that I think about it, it sounds like you something you put on a burger.
2: Yeah, I think I was using check-in. That's probably better. Okay, well, just explain to our listeners what we're doing. Yeah, the
1: idea is to do a briefer episode, uh, more direct, more casual, where we check-in or catch-up with uh, past guests and, and really see what they're up to. So we we picked out three good ones. We have some new projects that they can talk
2: about. Yeah, so we got got uh, Jack Byrne who is the Liverpool mystery author. We have Ted Smith, the former diplomat and C-suite executive. And we have Liza Donnelly, yeah. New Yorker cartoonist extraordinaire.
1: Yeah, Liza just published a new book, uh, Very Funny Ladies, New Yorkers, Women Cartoonists. So that was her latest thing to talk about.
2: Yeah, and Jack has got also got a new book coming out, interestingly, on St. Patrick's Day. It's called Across the Water. And Ted... I got to bend Ted's ear about the nature of the polity of the United States as he sees it. And also we talked about the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland. So I think it's an interesting discussion to listen to. So there'll be three brand spanking new bonus episodes coming in to fill the gap until we come back in May. So we'll
1: see you again in season four.
2: Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahlo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com.